I moved to Los Angeles to to write music for film and television, but playing playing rock and roll and and making rock records is what I knew how to do, and I figured I would come here and you know maybe find someone that wanted to do that with me. How did you end up in the industry? Well, it was something I wanted to do. I thought I could do it. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> That's a very familiar story I hear from a lot of rock people who get into movies is they just no idea. Sometimes it just works out. And often it doesn't. It's it's a whole different thing than, you know, I came up in bands and it doesn't really prepare you for this kind of work. Having ha- Knowing what to do with uh, electric guitars and basses and drums and Hammond organs and synthesizers does not tell me where the French horns go or where the violins go or, you know, what the articulations are on a cello. Um, So I had to go back to school and learn those things. And none of that prepared me for the hardest part of this work, which is, you know, dealing with filmmakers and producers and directors agents. It's it's very complex. And uh, also, there's a, a condition to doing this work called notes, which you don't get when you make records. You know, if I want to make a record, I write some songs and I call up some of my friends and, and we go in the studio and we record it and we mix it and we say, here's the record, press it up, put it out. But it doesn't. Scoring doesn't work that way. This is when I'm scoring. It's not my music. It's not my ideas. It's the filmmaker's music. It's the filmmaker's ideas. I I am an employee, and you never want to have the argument about whose idea about music is better. It's always the filmmaker's idea is the one you want to go with. That's fair. I mean, at the end of the day, it's their vision, right? And it's kind of your job to serve that vision. That's right. And a lot of guys from bands aren't, you know, that's that's more, that's a bridge too far. Having not had that process in your time making records is, I mean, I, it's it's kind of a blessing, right? Because not everybody has that. I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of horror stories of people in bands, certainly working with major labels who have been subject to a lot more micromanaging. It does happen. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. Just wasn't my experience for the most part. In those early days, in the early MC5 days, you know, especially given kind of the nature of, of the bands and dealing with a, a major label, you you weren't getting those kind of notes and that kind of pushback. I mean, was the was the label in general afraid to release the kinds of records that you were making? No, they supported us completely. It's helpful to keep in mind that this was the era of the self-contained band. It had just emerged with the British first wave that the Beatles wrote their own songs, that the Rolling Stones ultimately started writing their own songs, that the Who wrote their own songs. Um, Before that, uh, labels signed artists who were generally singers, and they would have a producer or an A&R man find the right material for the artist 
and uh, and supervise the recording sessions and the style and and uh, everything changed. And uh, the MC5 was granted uh, complete creative control. I mean, this is what all artists dreamed of, and and we were granted it. We had control over uh, every aspect of our work. The band not afraid to be political on record and, you know, in your day-to-day lives and, you know, given a lot of the politics of the time and, you know, a lot of this more left-wing groups that you were associating with. I mean, these to me strike me as the kinds of things that would terrify a record label. Well, eventually it did. In the beginning, uh, Elektra Records said they stood behind us and, and if we wanted to say motherfucker on our record, they supported our First Amendment right to free speech, but it all went sideways. Uh, and uh, at the end of the day, really what they wanted to do was sell a lot of pieces of plastic. And, uh, and when our militant leftist politics interfered with that, then they opted for um, let's sell pieces of plastic or let's get rid of this band. And then, you know, another label picked us up, Atlantic Records, and they too decided that we were more trouble than we were worth. <laughs> when did that label transition happen? Which records was that between? Between Kick Out the Jams and Back in the USA and High Time. So two, the first record was on Electra. Second tour on the Atlantic record label. They they saw that this white rock style was going to be a big money maker, and they wanted to get in on the ground floor of it because um, they were fundamentally a rhythm and blues label. But they you know they were record guys and music guys, and and they saw the handwriting on the wall. They knew that that uh, white rock bands were going to be the thing. And so they signed us uh, with the idea that we were going to be the, uh, you know, the archetype hard rock, American hard rock band, which we would have been had we been not as crazy as we were. Last week I spoke to uh, Felix of the Rascals and they were also on Atlantic. That one makes a little more sense to me, right? I mean, that to me isn't like, is it not a huge jump from soul and R&B to what they were doing? Right. The MC5 is a radically different band. Yeah, they didn't know what to do with us. Was that the downfall of the third record? Yes. Yeah, they they just let us make the record to fulfill their contractual uh, commitment. So there was no chance of that thing being a success then. I mean, they weren't putting anything behind it, it sounds like. Nothing. I think we shared one half-page ad in Rolling Stone with a new band they had signed, the Allman Brothers, who just wanted to boogie. They did pretty all right for themselves in the end, I would say. The Almonds. Oh, they're huge. You were sort of on the descent while they were on the ascent, it sounds like, with, with the label. Yeah, they, they, you know, they didn't know what to make of, uh, of us or our politics. They didn't know how to market the band. And, and uh, they, you know, Jerry Wexler, great old record guy, he signed us as kind of his parting shot to the industry. Like, 
here, I'm going to leave you a little something to remember me by. And, uh, you know, they, they just had no clue. And, and we were, to be honest, unmanageable. And, uh, you know, if, I mean, I've run record labels since then, and I wouldn't have signed me. <laughs> what does it mean to be unmanageable? Oh, well, we just, you know, we could we couldn't show up on time for our bookings. You know, we we couldn't manage our money. We were always broke. We always had to go back and ask them for some more money and and have them have Ahmet Erdogan explain to me that they're not going to send good money after bad with the MC5. Was there ever a conversation internally of maybe we need to start taking things a little bit more seriously from a, a business standpoint? Not really. I mean, we were trying the best we could, but we just didn't know anything. We were we were completely Pollyannish about how uh, the record industry functioned. We we just didn't didn't really have a serious grasp of what mattered and what didn't matter, and how to and how to conduct ourselves appropriately. In terms of the longevity of the band that first time around, do you think that having that level of initial success with the first record was ultimately a blessing or a curse? Well, I mean, it was a blessing because any any degree of uh, of recognition is what that's what you're going for. It was it was counter to the prevailing trend which was a label would sign a band uh, and then they would stick with the band for about three albums. And you would make a record, you'd go out on the road, write a new record, record the new record, go on the road, write a new record, record the third record. And by the third record, you would have learned enough about the songwriting and recording process that you could make a good sounding record and then you would have built up a big enough following to market the record to to guarantee that you were you know enough of a profitable business to be sustainable uh, you know that that's the opposite of what we did <laughs> A very rare instance of coming out of the gate with a live record. I mean, was that another way of saying F you to the label to a certain extent? Well, yeah, it was. Uh, no, it wasn't so much a challenge to them. It was the the realistic uh, appraisal that what we did best was perform live. And that recording a, a studio record that captured the excitement of the band would have been a expensive and arduous undertaking. So we we saw it as a, you know a revolutionary idea that the band's first record is live. Nobody did that. Usually, the fourth album was a live album because <laughs> by then they would have you know most bands had learned how to perform live. Well, we already knew how to perform live. That's what we did best. Do you feel that by the second and third album that you had accrued those skills and the ability to, you know, to the best of your ability, recreate some of that live energy on record? Absolutely. Yeah. Recording back in the USA was a huge learning curve. Um, and by high time, we had it. We knew how to do this. We knew how to be creative in the recording studio. 
it's a pity that the record didn't get a, any promotion because it's I, it's my favorite of the early band's records and and uh, you know could have could have made the difference for us, but you know. I could have been a contender. I think at the end of the day, you're you're certainly a contender. And one of the marked advantages that you have right now versus a lot of your contemporaries is that you're both still around and still doing it. And not everybody who hit those real heights early on stuck around. Well, that's true. There's a high attrition rate in the arts. and, uh, And I just felt like we're in a, we're in a, we're in a, crucial time in our country, in our lives, and that uh, the MC5 was is necessary to, to ignite the spirit that I had uh, as a young man with the benefit of 50 years of experience and skills and positivity to to carry a message of of empowerment to um, the uh, listening audience, uh, a message of the uh, dangerous time that we're in. That if uh, if we don't step up, if we don't engage in the process of democracy. We will lose it. I had heard interviews where you drew the, I think, pretty clear parallel, certainly during the Trump years between that presidency and Nixon, for example. But you know, having really sort of been through the, the ringer and seen a lot of stuff firsthand, I know the MC5 really sort of, in a sense, came out of what was going on in Detroit at the time. But does past several years, do the past several years feel different than the first time around? in terms of the state of the world? Yes. I I think we're in a much more precarious and volatile time. You know, in the 60s, you could say that we mostly had policy differences. Uh, The policy of the war in Vietnam, the policy of civil rights, the policy of uh, the environmental movement, the policy of... uh, uh, abortion and and equal pay for women, the policies about gay people. Today, it's not so much policy as it is ideology, that there is an authoritarianism, uh, I've, really a fascism entering American life uh, that if not disrupted, will destroy the American experiment. That specifically is something that I think about a lot. And I wonder ultimately how much of it is a fundamental difference and how much of it is just people feeling empowered to, as they say, say the quiet parts loud. Well, saying the quiet parts loud is one thing, but, you know, Donald Trump giving uh, angry Americans, mostly white uh, working class Americans, Permission to be assholes is another, you know, to giving them permission to be racist is another issue. Giving them permission to to be violent insurrectionists, encouraging that is, is another. This is a horse of a different color. This is serious. 
one of the parallels I think that I would draw, I mean, I, you know, I, I wasn't around for the 60s, but having my benefit of, of, of hindsight is that you talk to any person of color, for example, and they'll tell you that, you know, that, that racism never really went away. But people who were in a privileged position, which I would probably include the, the two of us in, being two white guys, have been able to ignore it and have not been confronted with it. And, you know, and it does seem that one of, I wouldn't say benefits, but one of the um, part of the impact of that is that suddenly these suddenly everybody has to be confronted with a lot of the things that have been simmering under the surface for a long time now. Yeah, and the sooner the better. I mean, to to face up to America's history as a slave trading nation um, is the first step to to finding a healthier sense of who we are. But to continue to deny it and and sweep it under the rug, you know, you're only as sick as your secrets and. <laughs> Trying to keep that under wraps ain't going to work anymore. Uh, you know, it's it's um, it's part of a, a larger mythology that America is somehow exempt from the rules that the rest of the world, the world's nations, have had to live with. That somehow we are blessed by God with. Uh, a, a, a free pass, a get out of jail free card. We're not, you know, our democracy can fail just like a dozen banana Republic democracies have failed. And all the signs are pointing in that direction. That's why we need to, to get involved on the grassroots level, you know, conversations with our friends, school board meetings, city council meetings, congressional representatives, uh, state representatives, state senators, you know, on every level, what's happening is exceedingly dangerous. The Republican Party are trying to subvert electoral process. And they're not joking. This is not a joke. They are serious. They want to make sure that if they don't like the way an election goes, they can change it. Obviously, you do have a lot more involvement. You continue to have involvement in in activism, and and certainly we'll get into that. But what role can the music itself have in actually affecting real-world change? The music has a, a place in this conversation, and it's the it's the town meeting. If if you love a Bob Dylan song, and I love that Bob Dylan song, we meet in that song. We both connect to the ideas in that song. They're meaningful to us. It shows that we're simpatico. We're a community between us. There's a, a, a kinship between us. And that's what music has always done, is it's provided the connection between individuals, and groups of people. There is only one people (laughs) on this earth. We come in a variety of colors and shapes and sizes, but we're only one people. And what's in our best interest is what really needs to be 
address. And music can help us find an agreement about that. Music um, tells the stories of who we are and what our days are like. It tells us we're not alone. You're not the only nutcase out there. <laughs> There's some more just like you. And that between us, um, we can make a difference. In your own life, in, in the past two years, what role has music played? Well, it's saved my ass. <laughs> you mean uh, like economically or emotionally or both? Emotionally. Emotionally, it, it helped me because I tell you, I really hit a bottom between four years of Donald Trump and then COVID. I really went dark. I, you know, I can go dark anyway. I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm mildly depressed to begin with. And, uh, so it didn't take a hell of a lot. Uh, but this was a lot, you know, Donald Trump, that was traumatic. It was catastrophic what he did to this country. And then the pandemic on top of it. And finally, I realized, and I was helped to realize this. I have a great therapist. And, I, you know, I'm a person that if I can't do something, I'll ask someone to help me. I know that I need human help. Uh, I needed help to quit taking drugs and drinking. Uh, I need human help to get along in my day. And uh, my therapist helps me with that. And one day she said, enough, Wayne, you have to go back to work. You have to do something creative. That's why you exist on the earth. Do it. Start writing songs again. So I called up a, a guy I knew, and he had been asking me about writing some songs together. He's a great singer and, and lyricist. And I thought, well, let's, okay, let's try and write a couple songs and it was fun. I really enjoyed it. I felt like, okay, I, I'm doing something that matters now. And then we wrote some more songs and some more songs. And I was in the middle of uh, recording Alice Cooper's uh, Detroit Stories album. And um, Bob Ezrin was producing. And I said, Bob, I've written a bunch of new songs. Do you want to hear them? And he said, hell yes. And he said, these are great songs. And the more we talked, he said he'd like to produce the record. And then we got a, my wife uh, brought in a fantastic record man um, at Ear Music, a German record company. And uh, they said, yeah, we want to be involved too. And so all of a sudden it was like music, creativity, pulled me up out of that pit of despair. And I was able to actually use that like, you know, like shooting an arrow. You pull back into your past and you use that as power to shoot the arrow forward into the future. And I was able to see that, you know, this music is right on time. This is, this is necessary for the days that we're living in and that the MC5 is the, is the proper venue for it. This is, the, this is the vehicle. The most powerful political tool I have is in the art that I can make. 
Definitionally, you really being the torchbearer from those early days, you know, being the the one member that's really carried over, what makes it an MC5 song versus anything else you might record? Well, the the MC5, if you wanted to sum it up, you could say, um, fuck the man, let's party. (laughs) That's okay. I'm good with that. I mean, that's that's a good uh, banner for a band. But to to go deeper, to go under the surface of stuff like that, the MC5 represents a sense of unlimited possibilities, that there could be a new way to play music, there could be a new lifestyle, there could be a new politics, there could be a new way to work, there could be a new way to have relationships with friends and family. Um that if you if you committed wholeheartedly to taking action, you could make a difference. You know, one person can make a difference. A handful of people can change the world. And and so that's the kind of commitment I think that's needed now. That uh, we have to take this this situation seriously. I mean, you know, there's a war going on. I mean, there's a war in Ukraine, which is an example of of the end game of authoritarianism. Putin is nothing but an authoritarian. You know, he's elected himself for twenty years as the president of that country. This is the kind of corruption that ends up with a guy like him having this wounded sense of national identity that the Soviet Union broke up and it's not the great empire that it once was, and he's going to restore it to its previous glory by invading a sovereign, separate nation for no other reason except he's building an empire. It's not that far away from Donald Trump. One of the things that, that I've always appreciated about you from an activist standpoint is I think that for a lot of people, you alluded to this earlier, but I think for a lot of people, it's easy or easier to point the finger outward to say, hey, this is, this is, some, this is terrible, you know, what's happening in Ukraine or this other country. And it's a lot more difficult to turn the mirror on ourselves. And, and oftentimes that results with... with that results in a lot more pushback from people as you know being anti-American or anti-patriotic. And one of the things that I think in my own personal experience, you know, although although you know I went to school in Santa Cruz, so I've been around a lot of you know of very left-wing people and, and activists. But as far as a pop from a pop cultural perspective, you were one of the first people that I heard being very vocal about what was going on with the prison system. And I've heard it, and you can agree or, or disagree with this, or, or I don't know if you feel that it's hyperbole, but as the sort of American industrial prison complex as being a sort of modern day form of slavery. There, there's really no other way to look at it. That, that the 13th Amendment, that, you know, uh, servitude, forced labor uh, is illegal except in the punishment of crime. And the history of uh, convict leasing in America is one of the saddest 
most egregious um, examples of unmitigated cruelty and exploitation in the history of the world. That that the prison systems in the South would arrest people of color and force them to work on plantations until they dropped. In Texas, they killed 30,000 prisoners by working them to death. You know, as a slave, you were someone's property and they had to take care of their property. There was an investment in the slave. The convict, you're nobody's property. There's no investment. And they worked convicts to death. There's a high-tech version of that today. And uh, I'm sure if the people on the far right uh, had their way, they'd have convict leasing and and uh, convicts working on road gangs again. But the same th- the same thing is has been continued in the in our medieval approach to crime and punishment and behavior modification uh, in this country. Yeah, yeah you're right. Uh, there's uh, there are problems in America that are serious problems. Uh, and as long as they're hidden uh, and stay undercover and nobody talks about them, uh, they're going to get worse. You also had a unique experience. I mean, I'm guessing that most people who are familiar with you and, and who are listening, um, you know, certainly this far to the interview are aware of the fact that you serve some time yourself. But your experience was unique from the standpoint of there was a very radical change to the prison system during your time there. Yeah, that's true. I um experienced the end of the era of rehabilitation in American corrections. I went to prison in 1975 and when I arrived at the federal prison at Lexington, Kentucky, it was a FCI, a federal correctional institution uh, uh, known on the prison scale as a medium security facility that there were about 600 people in the prison, prisoners. Uh, As I lived there for the next couple of years, the count, the population doubled as a result of the war on drugs and the get tough on crime legislation to push the population to 1,200 people where we didn't have enough bed space So we had bunk beds in the hallways of the housing units. We we used to have a a day room that had a pool table in it and a a television where guys, if they weren't at work, they could sit and watch TV. Those were filled up with bunk beds. It was like a, looked like a state joint. (laughs) And they told us, uh, yeah, we're done with rehabilitation. Now it's about accountability, and uh, if you do the crime, you're going to do the time. So the policy became human warehousing, and they started locking people up for egregious sentences um, for minor drug offenses. My offense, I sold cocaine to a federal agent. Um, The judge gave me a four-year sentence 
which I thought was pretty severe at the time. And it was. It was. For my offense, it was severe. But as time went on, my same offense carried a life without the possibility of parole sentence. And there are people serving those sentences this day. We're shifting back. We're we're swinging back the other way now. And the work that I do in the prisons, uh, I had a nonprofit. um, We're in over 160 American prisons, and we just built a youth center for young people involved in the criminal justice system um, to help them avoid spending these long sentences. But, um, you know, that's the good news. The Titanic is is turning ever so slowly, but it is turning. Your time on the ground in, in these prisons that you spent visiting in the you know subsequent decades, are you seeing some of that quality of life improve in real time? Yeah, I am. The fact that that we can run programs in in prisons across the country um, is evidence that wisdom is is seeping through. I mean, listen, we've been locking people up in California for two hundred years. hasn't worked yet. <laughs> and And those are not my words. I got that from a deputy sheriff, a Los Angeles County sheriff told me that. So, you know, they let us come in, we run programs, we help people find ways to identify with each other that will help them when they return to the streets. 95% of the people in our prisons are coming home someday, and they're going to live next door to you and me. They're going to stand in the line at the supermarket next to us. We're going to sit next to them at the movies. And who do we want next to us? Somebody who's been inculcated in a world of bitterness and defeat and racism and violence, or someone that was given a shot at understanding where they went wrong and tools to make sure they don't make those mistakes again. It's our choice. What exactly does rehabilitation mean in the prison system? Rehabilitation is a misnomer. It's really habilitation. People in America who grow up in a world that's of limited possibilities often turn to illegitimate activities to survive. Uh, Drug dealing uh, is one that's at the top of the list, that a guy can make more money quickly slinging dope than he can, well, you know, getting into college is out of the question because he probably didn't finish high school. Slinging burgers, for example. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. So... Um, you've got got people that are that are uneducated, um, that are ill-equipped to function in this kind of uh, service industry technological world that we live in today. So it's about meeting them where they are and going from there. In in California, we know that almost half the inmates are functionally illiterate. It's hard enough to get a job if you know how to read and write, but not knowing how to read and write, you're screwed. So that's important. And then the kinds of programs that we run in arts and corrections that show people 
living life skills, how to get along with people that you wouldn't necessarily hang out with or someone that disagrees with you without going upside their head or wanting to stab them or, or worse. <laughs> um, you know, to learn how to collaborate with other people, to learn how to express yourself appropriately are important skills that can start someone on a, a track that avoids another trip to prison. I mean, this is the trouble is most guys, they come and go, they come and they go until they get to be about 50. And what I've noticed is that guys start to age out around age 50. They're done being gangsters. They're done being tough guys. They just want to get out of prison. They want to have a little wife. They want to have a little home. They want to have a little job and enjoy what life they have left. But but we have been on the wrong path for 30 years, I'd say, 40 years. Since I got out of prison, you know, this get tough on crime rhetoric began and prison building um, began at one point in the 80s. Prison building was the second biggest industry in California. And uh, all the states started locking people up. Just unbelievable. When I went to prison, I'll leave on, I'll finish on this note. When I went to prison in 1975, there were 350,000 people in prison in America, 50,000 in the federal system and 250,000 in the various state systems. Today, we have 2.3 million of our fellow citizens under lock and key. So where did we go wrong? <laughs> Everywhere, it sounds like. Yeah. We talked a little bit about some of the sort of, I guess, mental health issues that you dealt with during the pandemic. And I certainly something that I can relate to on a very deep and personal level. I assume that being in prison, especially as that change was happening, is that time se- several magnitudes, um, you know, in terms of having some of these like dark, depressive thoughts during the years that you spent there. What, what kept you going? You know, Again, it, music saved my ass. Uh, you know, I could study. I was in with a great, I had the great good fortune to be, um, to serve time with a man named Red Rodney. Red was a great jazz trumpeter. He replaced Miles Davis in the Charlie Parker Quintet. He was in his 50s, I was in my 20s, and he became my mentor and my teacher. And became my, I think of him as my musical father. So I could study music with him. We played together in a band. We were able to provide, to be of service to our fellows in the prison by putting on regular performances of pretty goddamn good music. We played, we played pretty well and everybody knew it and everybody appreciated it. And, and it reduced tension in the prison. It reduced um, violence, which which is what we experience all the time with our programs today. So, you know, that made it easier to know that I was learning, that I was uh, under the wing of a great artist. Um, but that didn't make it okay. It still was a terrible experience. It's emasculating. It's it's dangerous in, in prison. It's... Um, you know, it's a violent uh, world, and um, and you spend a lot of time in fear, and that 
uh, has a negative outcome in human beings. I mean, nobody that does time comes out of it without some degree of PTSD. One of the things I've, I've always been fascinated with when it comes to your career and, and a lot of the interviews you've done is the influence of jazz musicians, both on the MC5 and beyond. I mean, I know that that it was a genre that the, I think the entire group was was interested in from from early on, and I'm 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 curious, and I know that you've cited like I'm a huge Sun Ra fan myself. I know you've cited him and Pharrell Sanders and a lot of the other a lot of the other free free jazz artists. And I'm always curious, you know, obviously the the MC5 and most of the work that you've done on the face of it, being a rock band or being a hard rock band, what influence, what what role does that play? How has that form of music shaped the music that you create? I owe a debt of gratitude to the free jazz community of the 60s and 70s, to the people like John Coltrane and Sun Ra and Archie Shep and Cecil Taylor and Albert Eiler and Sonny Murray and Pharaoh Sanders. Um, I owe them a debt that I can never fully repay because they inspired me by their cur- their incredible courage and tenacity to continue to create this music in the face of the most the foulest criticisms of the jazz establishment imaginable i mean i just recently um revisited some of those reviews uh, people said things about John Coltrane's work, Leonard, Leonard Feather and, and some of these other jazz critics. They were just, just merciless in ripping them apart, denigrating their art, denigrating their work, denigrating their humanity. And, and the, the resolve and the commitment that the artist showed inspired me to to um, do the work that we did in the MC5. You say denigrating their humanity, but you know even beyond the the criticism that you're talking about critically. I've read a lot of jazz memoirs and biographies in my day. Denigrating humanity on on the most fundamental level in in the just absolute racism that they all had to deal with on a daily basis. So they couldn't even work. They couldn't get work. Because the jazz critics said it was no good, club owners who were generally white guys wouldn't hire them. I mean, I, it's a debt that I will never fully be able to repay. I know that, but I owe them everything. They, they shown a way to move forward, to do important work in the face of a world that said, who in the hell do you think you are? 